Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Welcome to another edition of Around the Coin, the premier podcast for all things banking, payments, and fintech. Here are your hosts, Mike Townsend, Brian Romley, and Faisal Khan. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Around the Coin. My name is Faisal Khan, and I'm your co-host. And this episode marks the fourth year of us being on the air. Season four has now officially started. Big shout out to my co-host Mike Townsend who's getting married and the trio Mike Townsend, Brian Romley and myself Faisal Khan. We will be back together starting mid-September. To kick things off for season four, I thought I'd interview someone peculiar. Aaron Sylvia and I got in touch a few weeks ago in which he told me of a very unique story in the banking world. A story that people usually don't talk about. To put it bluntly, the oligopoly of the large three CBS providers in the United States, CBS meaning core banking system, and the three providers are Jack Henry, FIS Global, and Fiserv. Amongst these three giants, they pretty much dominate Red Control, the core banking system and allied services market in the U.S. So what's the problem? Well, they say the devil is in the details. Thousands of banks sign away these contracts with the big three not knowing what they have given up as far as freedom, flexibility and independence of purchasing these systems go and whatever happens to the ownership of the bank's data. Without any further delay, we will speak to Aaron Sylvia of Paladin FS to shed light on this very dark subject. Hey Aaron, how are you doing? I'm, I'm doing fine, thanks for asking. Okay, so tell me a little bit about yourself, who you are, and how did you get to be in the place where you are today, and then we'll take more questions as we go along. My name is Aaron Silva, and um, I have a uh, company for the last 10 years called Paladin FS, P-A-L-A-D-I-N-F-S. Since 2007, that has exclusively helped community banks negotiate these core and IT contracts. And as a result of doing that, I started recently which is what we're going to talk a lot about today, the Golden Contract Coalition, which can be found at goldencontract.com. And that is an organization where we are uh, doing our best to um, build the necessary leverage to help institute a fair and balanced agreement into the marketplace. But my background, I've been in the community banking industry my entire career, going back to 1992, 1993. I've always uh, helped community banks. I used to live on the other side of the table for many years selling technology services to banks. And I switched to the other side and started representing them in these negotiations again back in 2007. So I have a big place in my heart for community banks. They gave me my first business loans. They've helped past uh, me with other past deals and previous lives. 
And it's really a, a fantastic, fantastic industry and community. And that's, that's, that's what I've been doing my whole career. So the problem basically stems because uh, the industry is dominated by the big three, so to speak, which is Fiserv, FIS, Global, I guess that's the full name, and mm-hmm. Jack Henry. These are the three companies that come to mind when it comes to core banking in the United States. Is that correct? That's correct. Today, that's, that's correct. And they are the suppliers to all these small one-branch uh, banks to 10-branch banks, which are, I think there are about like eight, 9,000 of them in the U.S. And between them, these three banks dominate the banking-as-a-service model, if you will. Yeah, they, they control 93% of all institutions processed with them above a billion in assets and 85 or 86% of institutions below a billion in assets processed with these uh, these folks. So they, for all intents and purposes, they have a market oligopoly today. That's correct. So, and, and, and what's the core problem here? I mean, you know, so what are these major technology issues that are being faced by the community banks today? Give us a sample of it. Um, well, these banks depend heavily on these core suppliers to provide them what's called account processing, item processing, internet banking, bill payment, and ATM EFT services. So the blood that courses through the veins of the banks in the back office that process uh, their clients bringing money in or sending loans or all the, all the business that a bank does, it, plus all of the client-facing technology is considered core. Okay, And because, um, I mean, when I started in the 90s, there, there might have been 100 core processors in the United States. And they have been consolidating uh, consistently, and now we're down to the big three. And there are others that make up the the difference, but they're they're quite small. And so, what these three, the big three, have done is they've um, tacitly colluded, which is the legal form of collusion, and they have adopted each other's strategies and tactics to create this firewall, this market barrier that prevents these community banks from getting access to fair, reasonable, balanced, contemporary contract terms that if you weren't a bank and you were outside of this industry doing business with an IBM or an Amazon or an HP or an Infosys, that you would enjoy those benefits. So this, this industry has, is sort of on an island of itself, and this, these uh, big three are controlling what these banks are able to access and the technology they're able to access from these vendors is subpar at its uh, most basic uh, level. I mean, there is uh, very little that is competitive that the banks can use to compete against the big banks out there. And this gap exists and the the contracts uh, prevent banks accessing technology, the contracts access or uh, deny banks rights, um, uh, to get uh, access to other benefits and incentives that might otherwise they enjoy outside the industry. And they've just circled their wagons around the banks and they're controlling them in this oligopoly. How come How come this is not being shouted in the streets? I mean, you know, if, if, if three companies were uh, sort of, you know, controlling the telecom market like it is or any other market, that'd be a lot of, um, oversight, there'll be a lot of committees, etc. And banking is a very regulated industry. It's not like it's not regulated at all. I mean, you have 50 state regulators, you have federal regulators, the, the three uh-huh. federal regulators. So how come it, 
no one's shouting about this thing. How come it's uh, it's something I get to hear from you and just you know reading articles? I mean, it was not in my common knowledge that you know I honestly thought that the fire service, the FIS, the Jack Henrys were the good guys. But it seems like you know they want to portray the image as the good guys, but there's a lot behind the scenes that is happening that no one is talking about. Well. Um, we're we're standing on the mountaintop and screaming about it right now. So it is happening, and I'd like to think, and it's my belief that we are leading that charge. And it was very frustrating because when you when you see uh, the abuses, deal after deal after deal that we were negotiating at Paladin, and you see that uh, Pfizer, for example, will treat a bank in Massachusetts a one way, but then a bank of the exact same size, the same level of services, same transaction volume in California is being com- com- you know treated completely different. So there, there was there's no pricing efficiency in the market. Uh, they're able to get away with it because these banks don't commit, don't talk to one another. These contracts prevent them uh, from uh, talking about this because they have confidentiality agreements. So the banks themselves, it, it's a known, it's a it's sort of like the the best known secret that's out there. There is very little satisfaction with these providers. The banking, the bankers are frustrated with it, and you know they want to do something about it. Now, the folks that should be advocating for it, the state banking associations and the national associations, do not advocate for it. And the reason might be many, but the one that comes to mind is that these same core providers are writing them pretty big checks all the time for their event sponsorship and, and other activities they're doing with the associations. And these associations need every dime they can get. So they're a little bit conflicted. We will privately talk to associations and they'll say, Aaron, I love what you're doing with this golden contract. I hope you go out and get these guys. Every one of my banks talks about it, but I cannot endorse this publicly because it's going to affect my relationship with FIS. Now, on- So how do you... So how do you know that these are one-sided contracts and they're not comparable with the other other industry contracts, you know, for in the outsource industry? How if they're so confidential, why would they sort of tell you about it and how do you know it for sure? Yeah, great great question. I asked myself that question a few years ago um, before I formed the coalition because I've been in this industry drinking the same Kool-Aid everybody else has for many many years. And of course, I know they're bad. Common sense. I mean, if you took a look at it and read through it, you'd you'd scratch your head about some of the stuff you'd read it there yourself. So what I did to get it, but, but give me an example before you know. Just just give me a, a vanilla example of you know. Okay, let's say uh, you're a Fiserv bank, and there's a Jack Henry process bank, and as a result of that acquisition. I'm bringing, as a shareholder of the Fiserv Bank, I'm bringing all this new volume, all this new business over to Fiserv, okay? And by, by consolidating, I mean, I'm le- le- taking my shareholder equity and my cash, buying that bank, bringing all that business over to my bank, which is now more business for Fiserv. Now, you would think in any other uh, business that, you, that your vendor would be rewarding you and thanking you for that, but that's not how it happens. In this industry, when I buy... Uh, co- uh, bank processed by Fiserv's competitor, they punish me. I'm charged, uh, first of all, the Jack Henry Bank will charge deconversion fees, um, which is the problem of that bank. But then Fiserv will charge me conversion fees. I'll have to pay integration fees and I'll have to pay higher premiums on greater volume. 
Pfizer didn't spend $1 to acquire that bank or, or take away that customer from Jack Henry, my shareholders did, but I'll end up paying hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars more in premium just to bring that business on. And they structure their contracts in such a way that, I mean, they're what I call silent shareholders. They're benefiting coming and going. That's just one example. When I sell a bank, we'll go the opposite way. I'm three years into a five-year contract. I decide to sell my bank. Fiserv shows up and says, oh, you owe me 80, 90, 100% of the value of the remaining contract. Even though I'm never going to deliver any of it to you, you owe me all this termination expense. I have seen deal after deal after deal that have fallen out of bed or somehow been negatively impacted because the, the vendor has to be paid off. And they hold the data uh, they extort. They say, look, if you don't pay me the money, you are not going to get access to your data. We're not going to give your data to you so you can conduct business in the way you want. So this, it doesn't happen like this outside the industry. And so th- those are two examples I, I can I can tell you. And then if you want to know, I can tell you how I validated but, that. Aaron, what about the federal regulator? I mean, surely the FDIC or the Federal Reserve would take note of something like this, that they're, you know, that their banks under some weird clause of the Basel III, et cetera, can be held hostage by a vendor on data or something like that. Surely that has to be. It can't be that anti-competitive, can it? Yeah, you would think so. But the answer is uh, the examiners and the regulators are not there. And I've talked to them, and they have uh, at cocktail parties and more formally, and they've seen my presentations, and they've come up to me, and we've had conversations. And they said, you know what, Aaron, you're right. I hear about this all the time. And I'll say, what? why can't you do anything about it? We're not in the business of making sure the bank signs a good deal with their vendor. That's up to them. We want to make sure that that vendor is safe, it's sound, it's critical data, uh, you know, these type of um, statutory type things are handled. But they are not in the business of doing this. And that's where things are changing. And, and the conversations I'm now beginning to have with regulators is I'm saying, look, look and understand the risk that every single institution out there is assuming by getting into these deals. And, and, and these are just two great examples. There's estimated to be something of the magnitude of $320 million or more that this industry is going to pay these vendors for providing no services just by simply the fact they're consolidating and merging. And that's absurd. So the regulators, um, uh, they care, but there's nothing, there's no rules out there um, changing that matter. And that's something I'm starting to talk to examiners and I'm starting to get inroads and people are beginning to understand this problem because like you, they didn't know that it existed at this level. So it's when they go out and decide to put on a different, I don't know, a loyalty management card, you know, management software, they find out they can't actually buy it because Pfizer or the Jack Henry might actually sell it. Even though they're not subscribing to that service, they can't go buy from a third party because if they do, they're violating their original core banking contract, correct? Yeah, they have something in there called exclusivity. And exclusivity is a tricky little term. And it essentially says, Jack Henry will, in their exclusivity clause says, um, you, you can stop using the service if you want to, and, and you'll pay me nothing for it, but you just can't do that service with anyone else. <laughs> so if the vendor, and Jack Henry is a good example, their online banking prop, 
uh, product net teller is, uh, you know, pretty bad. And uh, if you saw it, I mean, you would never use it. A, a young person would never use it. If the bank decides that that product is no longer competitive and they want to go to an alternative, a fintech alternative, maybe a, a well-funded fintech out there, they have to pay 100% of the remaining cost of that service contract to exit. Then they'll pay Jack Henry hundreds of thousands of dollars potentially to deconvert the data. And then they'll pay uh, Jack Henry hundreds of thousands of dollars for an interface or integration or a private API. And so by the time the bank adds up all the costs to exit and then connect to that alternative, more competitive service, financially, economically, it makes no sense. And that is how they're able to control things. Um, it, it takes a great amount of courage to leave, say, online bank, Jack Henry's online banking for a competitor. And this is part of that tacit collusion and the types of things that all these vendors are doing to prevent banks from getting access to the next generation of fintech that's coming. Is there a sort of a timeline as to when they're time barred? You know, okay, you can't do this exclusivity clause will be applicable for, let's say, the next 12 months or 24 months, and then you can go and find you. How does that work? No, no, it's unless you know how to negotiate it. We're, we're con- in, in the deals we negotiate, we're constantly attacking the exclusivity language. Um, but their standard agreement, the stuff that 90% of the banks sign, I mean, they sign it, they don't, even, they don't know what they're signing. I mean, they're bankers. They're not classically trained CIOs, so you can't blame them. But, um, yeah, they don't find out uh, about these things until they until all of their customers, they find out that they only have uh, 25% of their customers using online banking, and they ask why, and the reason is the product sucks. And then they go to the contract to try to leave, and then they're in this problem I just explained. It's, it's sad. So that's that's a little disconcerting. You said the product sucks. You're explicitly implying that Fiserv, FIS, Jack Henry are not innovating as much or are not innovating at all compared to the industry in general. Uh, absolutely not. And I'm, I'm being pejorative to say sucks. Um they are not innovating, and there's no question about it. You can just look at their publicly, um, their public financial statements, and you'll see what they'll claim they're innovating. They'll claim that they're creating all new things, but uh, none of them have created anything in decades. And if you look at their public statements, Fiserv and FIS, they're free cash flow, which is another way of stating how much money are they putting back into the company, hovers around 7 or 8%. And I'm sorry, you are not a technology company if you're only investing 7 or 8% of your free cash flow back into it. Uh, uh, they are holding on to cash, and they're holding on to cash to do more acquisitions, and that is the way they're growing. They're, they're acquiring companies. Most of the companies are acquiring their technology is, is not current as well. They bolt it on, and then somewhere down the line, they force it onto their customers as, so they'll sunset the old product and then force the bank to buy the new product to replace the one that they just got rid of, which comes from the company they acquired. In the real world, I mean, everything on our mobile phone and everything on our lap, on our computers are updated automatically. It's part of the subscription service, but not in this world. Now, Jack Henry, uh, their free cash flow, last time I looked at it, hovered around 12 14%. It's much higher uh, than the other two, but the reason is, Jack Henry, it's known that their technology is even older and that they spend a lot of money defensively trying to upgrade it, make it look better and enhance it. 
Um, but if you're if if you if you were really a technology company as opposed to a hedge fund, which these folks really are, you would be spending in excess of twenty percent of free cash flow uh, back into the company, and that's what I've been told by uh, Cantor Fitzgerald and Evercore ISI, and these are you know major market global market analysts that follow these stock. Hmm. So okay, we've we've established the fact that there seems to be an oligopoly at play, not playing fair at all. So how does the Golden Contract Coalition, you know, how did it form and what does it do now? We formed it because around 2013, after doing dozens and dozens of these contract negotiations with Paladin, we began to see the vendors adopting each other's terms. We started to see the negotiation time frame going from 84 days on average from beginning to end to taking 84 days just to get the same quote out of the vendors. So the vendors had circled their wagons, started dragging their feet, um, increased the tacit collusion that was going on, adopting each other's terms. And it was just getting more and more difficult. We weren't having the leverage impact. And so I thought to myself, well, if we, if we don't have leverage, you know, is there another technology coming in from outside is a Microsoft or an Oracle or someone like that entering the market? And the answer is no. So in the absence of, any predictable disruption coming to, to force them to do business differently, we decided let's manufacture our own leverage by pulling together ideally hundreds and hundreds of community banks across the United States. Let's do what the banking associations should be doing, uh, but they won't doing for the reasons I mentioned earlier. Let's pull everyone together. Let's uh, pull their collective contract value together and then go to these uh, three suppliers and say, look, um, we want a better deal. We want you to adopt some of the standards that your peers and cousins outside this industry would be providing uh, these banks if they had the chance to access them. And we, um, I didn't know what that golden contract would look like. This is the golden contract standard. And we want you to do it because it's the right thing to do. We want you to do it because it's going to create efficiency. Uh, we want to see banks stop paying companies like myself to negotiate these deals or spending millions and millions of dollars on attorneys and just the time and frustration it takes to go through these negotiations. We want all that to stop. Let's come up with a standard template, not pricing. We don't want standard pricing. A a template that everyone starts with, kind of like when you do a real estate transaction. And from there, it's a fair uh, negotiating table. And then you can start adding things on to, to customize it for that bank. So we want this golden contract term sheet. And I didn't know what that would look like. And so I went out and I hired a third party that did, a firm, a firm called Pillsbury, Pillsbury Winthrop Sean Pittman. They're a D.C. law firm. They're global. They are the largest IT contract negotiating firm in the world. They've done over half a trillion dollars worth of deals. And they do most of their deals over the last 30 years with the IBMs of the worlds and the Amazons and you know the usual suspects. But they also had negotiated against FIS and Pfizer at the upper end of the market. I I can't remember the names of the clients they represented. So I told them the business problem, but they couldn't believe it. They were sort of, you know, that's, that doesn't make sense. Kind of like you are right now. And so um, I paid them to do a gap analysis and I gave them a couple dozen of these agreements and they went through these agreements and they came back to me and they said, uh, these agreements are from 1985. we, We haven't seen these agreements since the eighties. And they said, how many banks are signing these? 
And I said, thousands, all of them. <laughs> and they just were incredulous. They said, how is this going on? And so I explained to them the history and tried to make them understand. And um, so they developed with us uh, this golden contract standard. And these are terms and standards that any one of these vendors could easily and comfortably adopt that would help establish the long-term survivability, survival and viability of this industry. And it wouldn't hurt them to do the right thing by these banks. So that's what the golden contract is. So we're building leverage. We have a standard that's been developed, co-developed with uh, Pillsbury and ourselves. And um, I mean, that's our goal. We want, we want to see the industry adopt the standard so that bankers, before they do business with a technology provider, either one of the legacy cores, or if they're going to do business with a new fintech, we want them to ask that provider, are you following the golden contract standards? And if that provider says yes, then the bank will go forward and do business with them. If they're saying no, that vendor will come to us and get certified. Uh, do you make money off this? Um, no. Um, we ask all of the uh, banks to pay a small membership fee of $5,000. Whether they're huge banks or small banks, everyone pays the same. So I'm not putting my kids through college for $5,000, I can tell you. And the goal is when we are able to successfully negotiate the golden contract standard with any of these suppliers, all of the banks that are with that supplier will have the right to then adopt that, license that agreement for their purpose. And at that point, they'll pay us another fee, and that's, and that's about it. So this is not a um, giant money-making venture, uh, but there are costs involved. And we, through the memberships, they help us cover the costs and it has to be done. I mean, no one else is doing it and, and that's why we're doing it. Is this problem by any chance replicated anywhere else in the world that you know of? I, I, I don't know. I was told um, over the years, uh, I've, I've known folks that uh, one told me that in the um, disaster recovery and uh, backup uh, business continuity business industry, Um, that, you know, this is a rampant there as well, because in that industry, uh, when you ask someone, how much is your data worth? It's, it's an emotional decision and they'll pay just about anything. And I, so I do, I'm aware that uh, vendors in that space, uh, take advantage of institutions of all, you know, companies of all types uh, globally. And I've also heard that this also occurs in the medical industry, um, where, uh, also regulated uh, with HIPAA. And uh, these, um, you know, there's similar types of, I guess, core processing that goes on in that industry as well. But I can't say definitively uh, exactly how it's being done or to what extent. I just know this industry because this has been my life, my life's work. And, uh, you know, what do you want your core IT and other bank technology suppliers to do exactly with this contract? I mean, can you just shed some light on that? Yeah. What we want them to do is um, come to the table, meet with us and uh, all of these institutions that we're representing and go through this golden contract standard. Look at the way that we're talking about writing service level agreements. Look at the way we're talking about rights of termination and the ability for their customers to get access to open APIs or access to other technology if they are not providing great technology, giving the banks choices 
Uh, but do it in a way that's commercially fair, not in this predatory way that's going on right now. We would then take a look at their agreement, their standard template agreement, which all of them have, and we would go through that agreement and identify the areas where they could improve it or change it and get it closer to this standard. It's got strong LAs. It's got these proper legal covenants. I mean, there's many, many, many things that we would look to um, uh, see them implement. And then once they implement this, then we will stand on the top of the mountain and tell every bank in the country, this supplier is now following this golden contract standard. This is a, a supplier that you want to do business with. And here are the reasons why. They're not going to punish you in mergers coming and going. They're going to give you real service level agreements that actually mean something and, and can, be, uh, can be understood by the basic human and, and followed upon. Have the right legal covenants so that uh, your bank has more predictability about how this relationship will affect you over time. All these types of things, all the healthy things that everyone outside this industry enjoys, but this industry um, has no idea exists and, and is not able to take benefit from. That's what we're looking for. Hmm. How many members do you have? And you know how big is the, uh, you know are they? And more importantly, how many IT vendors have actually come to this you know, table and, and, and gone through this exercise with you? Yeah, we'll have, by the end of this year, we'll have an excess of 100 institutions on board. Um, we've, uh, we're a long way into that number already. The average asset size is $1.7 billion. And uh, today, our largest institutions are as big as $13 billion, And I think they go down to a couple hundred, hundred million. Uh, as far as the number of suppliers, we're focusing on Pfizer, Fidelity, and Jack Henry. Uh, although I have been approached by a dozen others that have said, please, I would like to know about how can I adopt this golden contract standard because I compete against Fiserv and FIS every day. And I feel if I had this golden contract standard, it would help me compete against them. So we're implementing a program this year called GC Certified, Golden Contract Certified. And it's exactly what you're um, uh, asking. So suppliers come to us. We review their agreements. We help them change their agreements into a way that adopt these standards so that it's a fair standard template. And then in exchange for that, we announce to the world and uh, that this vendor is conducting business in this way. And there are institutions and associations across the United States are watching everything uh, that we're doing. So, you know, we have a lot of clout out there. So, uh, before I ask the last question, you know, how many, first of all, how do banks join in when, what do they get right now? Yeah. Simple way to join is go to goldencontract.com. There's a, a join button there. Click on it. I think you answer three, uh, you know, name, rank, and serial number, bank name. Uh, we'll contact you, uh, tell you more about what we're doing. And the membership agreement is very simple. Again, it's a nominal, uh, price to join, the benefits are um, all there and they're tied to results and outcomes. So there's no risk for, for banks to do that. Uh, and that's the simplest way uh, to do it. Do you see a lot of uh, resistance going forward? How has the response been from the big three? Yeah. Fiserv has pretended that we don't exist. And um, that's, that's um, hardly a surprise. 50% of our members uh, are Fiserv banks. And that's not because we recruited it that way. That's just the way it come. And, and that makes sense because Fiserv's reputation in the market is probably um, 
uh, you know, the most shrewd uh, out there, and I, we see the most complaints from them. And the rest are probably split evenly between FIS and Jack Henry. So Fire Service pretended like we don't exist, although I've talked to um, people all through their organization about it, and our members have been talking to them about it. FICE, or Jack Henry and FIS negotiated with us in good faith for about three or four months a year or so ago, and they were very open to a lot of the concept. They liked the idea of having a standard that would prevent them from spending all this legal money and spending their time fighting with their clients as opposed to selling new services and things like that. So there was great agreement by both of them with us on uh, these overall concepts. But when we got to the electric third rails, like to call them about, hey, you need to stop being a silent shareholder and punishing banks for acquiring your competitors and they need access to the fintech economy and we need real SLAs that you can be held accountable to, not these fake service level objectives, best efforts things. And when we started getting to those areas of the contract, I mean, they got real, their feet got real cold real quick. And it was clear to me that I said, you know what, we're going to pull out of the negotiation right now. It's clear to me we don't have as much leverage as we need, but I know where the pain points are. I mean, like any battle, you have to sort of probe and see where their weak points. I see where their weak points are now, and that's what we're organizing against. Now, but since then, uh, many of our members in the coalition have had to renew their contracts. And one of the services we provide is we will renew their contract. And we have brought to the table uh, these gold, the golden contract terms in each of those negotiations. And the vendors, all of them, have been very receptive to adopting these golden contract standards. Uh, we did a deal recently up in um, Virginia where FIS adopted almost all of them. So we're still getting them done in one-on-one negotiations. But the real win for us is going to be when we can get one of them to agree to this standard so that we don't have to go through this exercise uh, every time. And, and and for all the reasons I mentioned earlier, that is the right way to do it, and that's the way it should be done. Do you have a number in mind as to, you know, if, you, if I get to so many banks and I have a relatively strong position for negotiating and bringing them to the table? Right now it's 100. Where would you like that number to be? Um, I think 100 would be fantastic. And I also think about contract value. I think by the time we hover around 100, we'll have probably a billion dollars worth of contract value in our pocket uh, to bargain with. And that, you know, you have a billion dollars and let's say half of the clients are Fiserv clients. Uh, FIS and Jack Henry are going to be very interested in doing something they can uh, to pry away that $500 million worth of contract value that are Fiserv clients because Fiserv won't come to the table. So you can, you know, we see them negotiating against each other and us, uh, uh, you know, creating that environment. But I would love to see, uh, I think of the, of the target banks that are most affected by this, you're looking, there's about 2,200, 2,300 institutions, I think, that are most at risk for these types of uh, issues and have the most to lose. I would love to see a few hundred banks, I think, uh, would be fantastic. But I don't think we need to get there. I think this problem is solvable much sooner than that. And with everything we're doing uh, now through the bank associations, now talking with regulators and the visibility we're creating uh, through folks like you, I think they're starting to understand. And it's we're not going to have to wait that long to get to the golden contract standard. 
Well, Aaron, this story is certainly very amazing. It's uh, something that really opened my eyes. I wish you all the best in your quest in getting this golden contract implemented. How can people get in touch with you other than the website, which is goldencontract.com? You can also email me at asilva at goldencontract.com. That's a A-S-I-L-V-A at goldencontract.com. Or you can... Um, uh, you can uh, uh, call us if you like, and that um, excuse me, my throat's a little dry. That number is eight four four six seven golden eight four four six seven four six five three three. So thank you very much for taking the time out, and I wish you a good journey. Yeah, uh, you've been great, and I appreciate you looking into something that not a lot of people understand is going on because it is a complex issue. And, uh, but it, you're right. It is fascinating and it's important. And thank you for looking into it and taking the time to, to be with me today. Great. To be very honest, I certainly would not want to buy a bank and then figure this for, find this out. But I, from what I take it, it this is exactly what's happening, right? This is, this is exactly what's happening. Well, there's no de novo activity, right? Oh, it's, there's, uh, there's been no new banks for many, many years, um, as a result of all the economic calamities we've had over the last decade. But, they're starting to appear, and we're getting approached by de novos, and they're saying, hey, uh, how do I do this? And we're saying, look, we have this golden contract. Um, that bank, that vendor wants your business. We're going to make them adopt this golden contract standard, and that's going to be a condition for doing business. And we think that's another uh, leverage point because there is no growth out there, and these, uh, the big three are just eating each other's lunches. So the idea of getting a new, a net new customer is a big deal, and that's a that's a great place to have leverage. So I see that uh, you know picking up over the next few years. Thank you very much, Aaron. I appreciate your time. Thank you. The views and opinions expressed on any program are those of the hosts, co-hosts, and guests appearing on the show, and do not necessarily reflect the view of the owners and producers of the show. Paid advertisements in form of audio announcements may appear throughout the show, including this one. Advertising can also include print and other digital formats. The owners and producers of Around the Coin do not endorse or evaluate the advertised product, service, or company, nor any of the claims made by the advertisement. All programs are subject to a one-time charge for professional editing fees, for which the interviewing guest or guests may have contributed towards. The owners, producers, hosts, co-hosts, and guests on the show are not financial advisors. Any investment advice or opinion cited during the show is for information purposes only. None of the content is intended to be investment advice. Seek a duly licensed professional for investment advice. If you believe there's been any violation of your copyright, trademark, service mark, or any other type of intellectual property, please inform us in writing by sending an email to legal at aroundthecoin.com. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. 
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.